listening to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. My name is Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. Well, Glenn, happy October. Happy Shocktober to you too, sir. <laughs> I actually have an Oktoberfest. Not that Oktoberfest occurs in October, but still, that's what I got here in front of me tonight. Oh, very nice. Excellent. Well done. Four Peaks, a local Arizona beer that I know you're familiar with. Yes, it's great. Great brewery. Uh, let's see. A couple... Little business things to get out of the way first. Big thank you to a couple new patrons on patreon.com slash podcast. Big thank you to Jessica and to Philip. Thank you so much for you contributing to our little show here and uh, you know, helping us uh, keep things going. Yeah, thanks, guys. And then next order of business would be the anagram for today. Uh-huh. So uh, I like this one. I like how this turned out. Con man clothes. Con man Close. Yep. C O N M A N C L O T H E S. Try as you we go through the next hour or so talking about uh, some stuff to uh, to unscramble those to be a you know fingerprint somewhat related term, and we'll we'll get to the answer at the end here. Other than that, uh, I I I got it. I you like got that it already. One. I like that one. That's a good. One. I liked it too. I was like, ooh, that's that's perfect. Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> It's October. Uh, you, I know Halloween is is a you know is is big deal with you and your household. Uh, yes. Uh, you gotten into any any horror, spooky, scary movies here uh, so far this uh, this month? Well, a couple of things. Uh, I you know I I think during one of our our episodes, or maybe during a happy hour, but I feel like it's an episode. I talk about certain movies that I I watch for Halloween, so I've got my my staples. Yeah, and uh, so I've, I've watched two of my staples already, which of course uh, I usually start the season off with Seven, which I just, oh, I just, I love oh. that movie. So <laughs> se- Seven, yes, it's they like to ease into it gently, and then Donnie Darko are just, it's oh yeah, just two two classics for me. And I got a bunch of Tim Burton stuff lined up. I'm gonna probably do Sleepy Hollow this year. I always do Nightmare Before Christmas, uh, Corpse Bride. I saw that there is a uh, like a 40th maybe anniversary or 30th anniversary of Beetlejuice available, so I might. Uh, I haven't watched 30. Yeah, 30. Okay, <laughs> I haven't. Uh, I haven't. I haven't watched that one in a little bit, so eh, I'll probably go back and, okay. and watch that. So yes, ha- Halloween movies. Then I'll get into lots of weird, crazy B movies, which I've already watched a few. Some bad. Some not too bad. That's always a uh, always fun. And and you, any any good ones? It's not quite Halloween related, but I just finished a BBC series that I just can't recommend highly enough called River. Oh, okay. That stars uh, Stellan Skarsgård. Oh yeah. And is oh boy, it's uh, I mean it's it's a police you know investigate murder kind of thing, but uh, really interesting kind of take on all that and and just oh sad and poignant and all sorts of good stuff okay good for my son (laughs) speaking of boy just jumping right into the month my son's been watching a lot of movies online with friends uh, here recently uh, or catching up on movies you know that he's heard about and he's you know he's interested in kind of seeing some of the classics and and uh you know trying to point him in certain directions of of what he's liked so far Mm mm-hmm and um, so he said, "Yeah, I just watched uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest." Oh, okay, I was like, "Whew, that's uh, yeah." He, he he enjoyed it. I was like, "Okay, good." 
And then I'm going to, yeah, next I think I'm going to do um, uh, Clockwork Orange. It's like, oh boy. Wow. Yeah, so that's, <laughs> that's, that's a hell of a pair of movies to go back to back with. But. Right. You should maybe mix it up with a little bit of uh, The Shining in the middle. There you go. But uh, I, I, I was talking with my wife, you know, because she doesn't really get into the horror movies much, but uh, she really does like horror comedies. Like Tucker and Dale is one mm. of her favorite movies. Shaun of the Dead. Um, in Shaun of the Dead, exactly. So I'm going to try to get her to watch Reanimator uh, this month. Oh, I don't think that's going to go well. No? No. Uh, my prediction right now, you might as well put that up there with Frank and Hooker and... Uh, oh, uh, oh, Reanimator's hilarious, maybe, though. Maybe even Dawn of the Dead or Day of the Dead. Yeah, I, 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 my prediction is she... That kind of like weird slapstick gory humor campy like that that's a guy thing i I, it really is but again like i said tucker and dale she just adores yeah but that's a great movie i mean that that that's a that's a funny movie it's a funny premise to begin with i think that's the thing it's that for for listeners haven't watched it it's these guys who get involved in these antics who accidentally end up causing these other kinds of deaths where they're fighting evil but they don't know they're fighting evil kind of like 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 the three stooges it's kind of told from two perspectives tucker and dale are a couple of rednecks who are just trying to fix up a a vacation home but there's also these college kids in the woods and from the college kids perspectives tucker and dale look like a couple of just you know monster redneck murderers and uh just you know coincidence makes kind of emphasizes that viewpoint yeah But then on the more lighthearted side, we did just watch uh, Transylvania 6 5000. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. Which is a fun, cute little movie with uh, Gina Davis, uh, Jeff Goldblum, Kramer. Uh, oh, yeah, right. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's so stupid, but it is, it's, it's charmingly stupid. So that's, that was, that's definitely one to kind of kick off the month. All right, I think we've done enough chit-chat here for uh, for this episode. Ready to jump into the, the main topic? Indeed, indeed. All right, so paper has just come out. It really just published last month in the Journal of Forensic Sciences. It is called uh, Fingerprint Error Rate on Close Non-Matches by Jonathan J. Kohler and Shi Quan Liu. And as... As it says on the tin, it's, uh, it's talking about error rates for uh, close non-match comparisons. We're gonna, you know, we're gonna kind of get into uh, <laughs> some stuff on uh, uh, on this uh, this kind of mini accuracy study. Yeah, and to put in perspective, these were close non-matches that were inserted into proficiency testing in a national proficiency test that was given in a country. The paper doesn't say, but we'll we'll get into that. So I'm just going to give a brief summary of the key results from the study. 125 agencies participated in a proficiency test administered in an unnamed country that consisted of five trials. Two of the trials were from different sources, and they were close non-matches, and three of the trials were from the same source. Now, no information is given about the mated pairs. The paper focuses on the two non-mated trials, which examiners, of course, were unaware that they were non-mates and unaware that they were difficult close non-matches, of course. The false positive error rate reported for close non-match number one, excluding the inconclusives, as Eric will talk about a little bit later, (laughs) was 15.9 percent. 
And the error rate for close non-match number two, excluding the inconclusives, was 28.1%. I have a little perspective because I know Jay Kohler. Uh, I've known him for some years now. We didn't have the best history to start off with. In fact, uh, I, I really upset him in giving a presentation once. And he kind of thought I was saying one thing when I was really trying to say another. But it was a really good example of us using terms differently or, or how we reacted to these terms. I was trying to explain on proficiency tests this issue of calling clerical errors false positives. And I see from his perspective they truly are false positives. I mean he's right by that. But what I was trying to point out is that they should not be counted as erroneous identifications, especially – and I gave several clear examples in the presentation of instances where like even one person, you know, the, the one of the false positives they got declared for in the, the proficiency test was saying that it was the right palm of let's say subject number one when in fact it was the right ring finger but they were using the palm print exemplar. But they wrote down right palm, which was stupid of the participant, but they wrote down yeah. right palm and when the answer should have been right ring. And, 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 oh, and there's another example I showed where one of the participants wrote down left index finger of the subject, but – when you look at the card of the subject, it was an amputated finger for the left index. <laughs> so, I mean, those were great examples of these are clearly clerical errors here. Right. Right. And uh, and I was just taking issue with calling them false positives, although now I've changed my tune on that. I agree with Jay Kohler. They are false positives. But even this paper addresses that issue a little bit, and it's nice to see that oh. Jay's – uh, Jay's, un Jay's understanding our perspective on this. And over the years, he and I, 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 I call Jay a friend. I, I quite like him. Uh, I've enjoyed our talks and chats. And he's always been a, a big proponent of the value of error rates and why they're important. So at some point, I'll probably try to get his perspective across as I understand it. And you know, who knows? Maybe he'll, he'll email us and have, uh, have, have more, more to add to it. But I'll, I'll definitely at some point jump in with what I think is his perspective on this and why they are so critical. So let's, let's back up for a minute before we kind of get really deep into the paper itself and, and talk more about close non-matches as yeah. a concept, the, the purpose behind this paper, the need for research on this subject and the research that exists on, on this subject. You know, first off, close non-matches, uh, what we're talking about is a, a, a latent print and a known print that is being compared by an examiner. And there is uh, some degree of similarity in the features between these two prints. Uh, however, it is, in the purposes of a study, known that these did actually not come from the same source. Yeah. The latent print is typically smaller or has some sort of distortion. You know, without it being there, you could see all of the differences, uh, but you end up focused on a relatively small area of the print. You know, only really similarities exist between these uh, these two prints. That any differences you know may become in certain samples, you know, really subtle and and, and might be more difficult for. Uh, an examiner to detect. Or or in some cases, they're actually fairly obvious, but there are so many similarities that they tend to either overlook, dismiss, or misattribute these differences to distortion sure. that may not be present. And I'd actually say that that's the case in both of the trials <laughs> used in this study. Yeah, definitely. 
Or they may get to some sort of preset number and then stop and not continue looking at the rest of the comparison. Um, basically then not seeing the difference that they would have gotten to if they hadn't stopped uh, after reaching a certain number of points in in uh, in, in common. Mm. I, I find that to be pretty rare. Uh, in, I mean, in my experience, research with close non-matches is that they al- almost always do detect the differences. They're just, mm. as you say, so far over a threshold that much like in the Mayfield case, it simply becomes a matter of it's got to be this person. All of these differences just must be explained by distortion. But, I mean, I take your point. If if there was was an area that wasn't considered, but usually these are small enough impressions or small enough dense areas that I find that they're often not overlooked. Well, and and I, I would completely agree with you. Uh, for agencies and in countries where uh, the where there isn't a point standard, I especially for for one of these samples here would kind of question question that and and how a point standard uh, plays into uh, the error rates that that we're seeing here. But we'll, we'll get into that here in a little bit. Sure. One of the you know the biggest risks for a close time match is uh, really from an AFIS search. It's the it's the Brandon Mayfield case, and that's basically what APHIS is designed to do. You put a latent into APHIS, it's going to bring you back a list of candidates that, um, and in that list of candidates, you will only have, theoretically, the actual true match or close non-matches, or a mix of both. That That is all that APHIS brings back to you is close non-matches. Now, for the vast majority of the time, they're not actually all that close, <laughs> but... It is the closest close non-matches that uh, the system could bring back for this particular latent print. Overall, you know, especially when you're dealing with APHIS, there there is a greater risk of error when an examiner is is uh, comparing uh, close non-matches, and uh, you know this paper kind of explores that. And I think you know, actually going back to Glenn, one of your papers with the uh, the NIJ publication. You know, explored it even further with with more samples, and you went into a little bit more in depth. So, I, I was actually hoping if you could speak a little bit about that paper and how you guys created your close non match samples. I've always always found that um, that story interesting. Right. So, uh, close non matches have been of an interest to me for oh. 15 years now. I I remember there was a project at the BCA that I decided, you know what, why don't we, this is right after Mayfield, really, why don't we attempt to find some of the best close non-matches possible? So we're, I got an intern, and for an entire summer, what we did was we trolled for close non-matches, and we were searching IAFIS database at that time, which was probably... Oh, 60, 70 million, right around that, 70 million records. You're pushing you know, 700 million fingers. So we would crop small areas of the impression and then search it in the database. And it didn't matter what pattern type came back because even if we were search- searching a loop against a whirl, that's fine. Maybe there's a way to kind of you – know, basically we're looking for the doppelganger in the system. So I would take my finger. And even if I would just search a little cluster, even if what came back didn't look overall like my finger, it didn't matter as long as it looked like my finger in a small area. And I would call that my doppelganger. Because then once I found my doppelganger's 10 print card, then I could take that specific finger 
and reverse engineer it and make a hundred impressions with that finger distorting the finger because I always want to create natural latents. I don't like cropping the latent. So I wanted to distort it, twist it, um, you know, put it on a surface that naturally cut off, you know, some of the offending clear different areas, smudge it just enough so that it looked like a natural latent print. But in the area that was the matching to the doppelganger, that would be present. So it still looked like a genuine latent, but I knew that it had this high degree of similarity to this non-match in the system. And we did that for several people that work there coming up with our doppelgangers knowing that we would have an unlimited supply of latents against that card. So that's what we did for one of my first studies, which was part of the thesis work, and many of them were actually published in the thesis, and then later did something like that again for the NIJ study, but on a smaller number of samples. Plus, Prior to uh, having them go out into the study, I tended to pre-test them. So in courses or in little mini experiments or workshops, I would give a group of examiners these and, and then end up selecting the images, the close down matches that produce the higher error rates. So that way when it went into the study, I knew I was self-selecting, stacking the deck with the best close non-matches. And to me, this was a, a, a really good way to ensure out of maybe 30 samples that we had, we were selecting the two or three or four best ones for the study. And I, I, I think now is a, a good point to mention this because when we get into the paper, you know, this is something that, you know, the authors in the paper bring up is that they wondered, you know, how often examiners encounter these kinds of close non-matches. And my view here is, although we and, and I, I'll cop to, you know, we don't have data on this. Most of my best close non-matches took me years to find out of a, you know, yes. a large number. These were the best of the best of the best that I knew fooled examiners time and time again. And I do think that the ones even in this paper that we're about to cover – are a very special subset of some of the better ones, in particular one in the paper that I'll discuss. But I, I, I do think that they tend to be a little bit more rare because here's the thing about close non-matches. Like you said, Eric, you'll, you'll look at some of those scores and go, wow, this is a really high score. And then when you look at it, you'll see 10 matching features, maybe even 12, and go, wow, this is great. If there weren't the four or five clear minutia in the middle right. that APHIS didn't take into account in its scoring because APHIS doesn't know how to score differences. So you can have 12 to 14 matching features real clearly in the late and the unknown in an APHIS hit or non, if you will, a close non-hit. But there will be so many clear differences that it would never fool a human examiner. So immediately I would get rid of those because you don't want that. You want those differences on the outside of the cluster or in areas that could be reasonably explained by distortion. If they're sitting right in the middle of the cluster, no examiner would ever fall for it. So that's what makes them so hard to find is that there's plenty of close non-matches with clear differences – that you have to find the close non-matches without the obvious differences or the ones that are peripheral enough that could be attributed to some other distortions. And I think you've got some experience teaching with a really good close non-match too, right? Yeah, yeah. Where you know, it's typically 20, 25% uh, of the class 
uh, would would reach an identification uh, on that sample. How many would actually exclude though? That's a. Because you probably oh, got a lot leaning toward. Yes, so I would have to go pull up. It's been a couple of years since I've used that sample. I'm, I'm still going to guess it's a fairly low percentage actually excluded. Yeah, so it was. If I'm remembering correctly, it was typically you know the twenty twenty five percent would identify it. Another maybe twenty twenty five percent exclude, and then big the big chunk about half or so would be inconclusive. Yeah, and in uh, as the class evolved, um, I kind of took away the middle inconclusive option and, and forced examiners just as a part of such a training environment to pick at least leaning one way or the other for towards exclusion or towards ID. And it, it still kind of broke down about half and half uh, there. Yeah, which, which are fantastic training samples. Those are exactly, exactly the kind of samples. Plus, you want people to have that uncertainty. And I find that in courses, having them make the mistake actually is pretty meaningful. If they actually do commit to the, the similarities, it really is very – it can break them and, and it can really uh, um, – especially newer examiners who are trying yeah. to get some confidence. Yes, it can have that effect, but you really want that. You want them to know where those limits are and I, I think it's, it's, it's yeah. important. Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> well, so that sample first got included in, in that training just because I wanted to include a close on match, right? It was the training was on exclusion, uh, but it didn't want just just a whole mess of latents that you know what they look different, but they're really the same. And then everyone kind of gets on board of yeah, 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 okay, these are all actually IDs, but keep people on their toes and have a mix of you know these actually look the same, but they're actually different. Yeah, well, I didn't expect actually I didn't actually expect erroneous IDs in the class, and then mm. you know that that came up as a. Um, some of the first classes, a contentious topic of of you know, people insisting that um, yeah that actually was an ID. But the, I think the key thing here, and I want to you know kind of set this up at the beginning here, and then follow it up after we talk about through the rest of this paper, is the rarity of these kinds of samples. What, what you're, exactly what you're talking about there. So this this one close non match that you know I used for you know a few years, quite a few years in training, was the one out of thousands and thousands and thousands of APHIS searches, APHIS search candidates of reviewing each one and hitting print screen to, you know, file away the closest, close nine matches I could find and then reviewing them to see, all right, what would, you know, which one would be the best for a training session. Different technique than what you used, uh, but the way you designed it, you know, allowed you to set up uh, this kind of this kind of research study because you had ground truth, but still, I mean, hundreds and hundreds, you know, searching through a database of millions to find this one area on someone else's print that was like you're saying a doppelganger to your one little small area, and then just leaving hundreds of latents of just this one area to find the one that naturally cropped out all the differences kept the similarities to maybe fool examiners and then testing that against many examiners to see which ones actually were fooled the most i mean years of work (laughs) to to come up with just the handful of samples that where you could really have a worst case scenario and try to get the error rate up as high as possible right now 
I agree with everything you just said and totally true. I'm going to play a little bit of the view in the article here is that – but yes, once you have those – as a community, you guys don't do really well at detecting those. And I think we've got a pretty good history of dismissing good close non-matches as they've come along. And the article doesn't jump in too much to it, but it mentions – and I'm going to add a couple others. I mean the first published close non-match was uh, – was it uh, Adius, uh, Mark Adius and Yaron, I think, uh, from Israel, which was – it was just dubbed the Israeli print, which was a beautiful right. seven – seven-point close non-match, which was dismissed by the community as not even close. And then when in 1995, when the CTS proficiency test used twins to create a bloody impression, again, you know, there was a fairly high error rate. It was 23 percent of examiners made it a false positive on that one. And then what happened, there was this outcry from the community and then CTS never used identical twins again <laughs> and and, yep. and abandoned that practice. And, and there were articles and views at the time that, well, these examiners that made this mistake kind of need to be rooted out because this is unacceptable rather than, again, looking at our own problems within. As as close non-matches have come up over the years, as a community, we've tend to dismissed or tend to have dismissed the, those issues. I'm hoping that this paper is going to kickstart things and make people now the, – the, the the larger community go yeah we we have to face this issue uh, fa- we have to address it face on and even though they might we think again from what you just said the ones that we selected were relatively rare i would argue that the authors would probably say well we actually don't know how rare they are because there could be many out there that are good that passed through verification someone was convicted on that evidence and we and we don't know how many good ones are actually out there and i, I there's always that issue in forensic science without the ground truth. True. I would still kind of point to to your paper that did establish the ground truth as as still underlying how difficult this actually is to 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 create. Yeah, I, I I mean if I was to go out on a limb, I'd argue that most agencies in 30 or 40 years probably have a couple of close non-match erroneous IDs sitting somewhere in all their casework that they're unaware of. I think that's fair. Over many decades, a yeah, a, a fairly uh, small handful. Yeah, but but they but they exist, and they're there. They're unfortunate errors that are are simply part of the noise, but 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 they likely exist. True, and I'm going to have some critical things to say about this article, but you know, by the time we get to the end, uh, but I, I do want to emphasize that the. Uh, I believe this is an important topic to cover and to conduct more research on. And I still think the gold standard of research that we have so far on this topic of close on matches comes from the work that you've done already done uh, and published seven, eight years ago. Mm. Uh, I, I would love to agree with you <laughs> and, and take some credit there. I think that this paper went to an area I never could have. I was never bold enough to do. Uh, I'm, and mea culpa here. I know that close non-matches are a real problem. I've known this for 10 years. I've never wanted to publish this kind of paper. I've rather addressed it in training before, if you will, that that got out 
and now it's out in my view. I, I think this was this was a really critical paper to have published. I'm glad it's published. I could never have published this paper. I wanted to address these issues in training before this kind of paper ever did come out. I think it will probably tend to spur other research in this area, which will be great. But I, I do think it's a bigger issue than as a community we've been willing to face. I was kind of hoping that grassroots training, much like in your course too, would would spur examiners to be more careful and be aware of it. And I, and I honestly believe it has. The examiners I meet today, they seem to be recognizing more of their own limitations but I don't know that we've even really scratched the surface of the community, even with training. Your thoughts? No, I, I, it, I'm just chuckling a little bit because it, I'm just thinking back to our happy hour we you know, had a couple weeks ago talking with uh, Jack uh, from Texas and um, mm. some of his comments after taking my class questioning his ability because <laughs> yeah. uh, the difficulty of some of the samples. I mean, I understand that, that your paper – wasn't as as uh, punch you in the face bold, right? Of specifically this close non match topic, but even still, even your paper was relatively small scale, with uh, with twelve samples, three of which were uh, close non matches. Five in the the one in the NIJ one, three out of the fifteen samples, and then in uh, the other one, you said five out of how many? Twelve. Okay, and and that one had a really high error rate. It was ten times the black box study because each one of those close nine matches had at least eight to ten what I thought relatively clear similar minutiae with no real obvious, real obvious minutiae differences in that area. But but there were clear differences available, but maybe not clear and obvious, you know, unpaired minutiae in the middle of a cluster. True. But so then I'm just comparing that to this paper here. With five samples and two of them being close on matches. Sure. That's, I would have hoped that a, a paper focused specifically on it and, you know, building from work had, that had been done previously uh, would, would be an expansion um, of the research and not, you know, at the same or lower level of, of number of samples to get that real, you know, more clear picture of uh, of what's going on. Yeah, uh, in the proficiency testing setting, though, that that's what I think was pretty clever for them. I, that uh, as opposed to, hey, well, you want to participate in this study? You know, they the examiners in this country have to do annual proficiency testing, so it's not uncommon for them to get five samples in a proficiency test. They actually tend to get five or six in the test and have to um, also often uh, write or narrate their conclusions as well. So that's a it's another little subtle difference we need to get into in the different countries. Why don't we Why don't we go through the basics of this paper and if reviewers right. haven't read it yet? All right, so. The 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 first thing that that you know, kind of jumps out to you. We've been talking about this other country, and and throughout the paper, there there's these references of, well, I mean, there's references to agencies in the U.S. and work practices in the U.S. and and you know, comparing applying the results of this paper to uh, work as practiced in the United States, but you know, it never really jumps out and says exactly where. You know, where this research took place. It uses terms like you know, permission from national authorities to conduct a proficiency test. The software was translated by the research team. Uh, the 125 nationally accredited fingerprint agencies participated from 
large portions of the country, elite national forensic science agencies, the host country. There's a lot of kind of dancing around that. I'm not entirely sure why, but... I have a guess. You have, <laughs> I guess I guess it's... Uh, yeah, I guess it's pretty easy to guess, but um, it doesn't really come out and say, say that. But the co-author, besides Jay Kohler, Shiquan Liu, from the Institute of Evidence Law and Forensic Science, uh, China University of Political Science and Law, Beijing, China. Yeah. So Shaquan's also a very good friend of mine. I love Shaquan. I spent time with him in China. Um, his PhD uh, actually has very similar studies to my studies. I've been a co-author on some of his work. We've studied Chinese examiners and, and their behavior. And one of the reasons I think the authors uh, – I think it's a choice, uh, wise or not. And I, from their perspective, I, I, I understand 100 percent why they might not want to state the country that this was conducted in. But anyone reading between the lines would easily come to the conclusion, obviously, it's it's China. Because for one thing, it, I mean China has tens of thousands. I think they have something like 40,000 practicing fingerprint examiners who do crime scene work and do fingerprint work and so on across the entire country, which is the only way you can get 125 agencies to participate in a national sort of study like that. Coming from a national mandate, you must participate. I mean it, it, it just makes sense. But from their perspective – I, now, I don't know this. This is my assumption here is that they might not want to indicate that because what they don't want are U.S. examiners going, oh, well, this paper doesn't mean anything. These are Chinese examiners. Uh, what does that have to do with us? They're, 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 they're Chinese. They've got a 12-point system. You know, they got this different way of doing things. Uh, it's, it's not like here in the U.S. If you conducted this study in the U.S., you get totally different numbers. I want to unequivocally say – I don't agree with that statement. I suspect you'd get very similar results if you conducted this study in the U.S. and slipped these in into, say, a CTS test or something like that because it was already done. And when it was done, we had nearly identical numbers back in 1995. So I'm going to argue – no, my view is that you would get the same results. And having worked with Shaquan on testing Chinese examiners, we saw identical data in their performance of feature selection and comparison and all the things that, that American examiners, U.S. examiners experience and do and all the little nuances of their subjective ACE-V were all in the Chinese examiners as well. There was almost no difference at all between Chinese performance and, and U.S. performance even though that they're under a 12-point system which I thought was pretty interesting as well. But I just want to kind of get that out there. That's my suspicion for why they why they would not want to declare that is that U.S. examiners would simply dismiss this paper outright, and I don't think we should. Comments? I completely disagree. Uh, fair enough. All right, why? <laughs> I, I think that there's two factors that are even mentioned here in the paper, uh, and you hit on one of them, and it's the 12-point standard. I think that the – especially looking at – the, the the first sample, um, which I would deem to be the most di the more difficult of the two, has some important some similarities in accuracy rates to the to U.S. examiners, but an important difference as well. I'll just get to it in a second. But the second one just seems I, I don't understand how you could compare the entire print and aha uh, they did and, and uh, they compared and they a, they, a, a cropped image of it. 
So, well, we'll we'll get we'll get to that here in a second. So, the, with the twelve point standard, if you get to twelve, you know, um, in that kind of environment where that's the that's the standard for an ID, I can see that having the, an influence of artificially increasing the error rate for close non matches because you can get to twelve. Uh, but I think even more importantly is the. Uh, you know the authors here downplay the differences between the U.S. and China. I, I I do agree that there is a little bit of downplaying there, but don't disagree with their their downplay. But the the second uh, point being that examiners are in China are discouraged from using the inconclusive category. Right. Uh, so l- let's just say that their type their approach one agency. Let's just call them right. approach one. Exactly. Uh, but I think that this difference is is really important. Where but aren't U.S. exams discouraged from inconclusive on, on CTS proficiency tests? <laughs> uh, it's not even an option. The check. No, that's that's true. It's 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 not allowed uh, to to reach a. Granted, it's not it's it's not allowed because the agencies kind of understand that CTS isn't putting in borderline comparisons. Which is a whole nother problem, yeah. But uh, but still, I, th- I think this the discouraging of using inconclusive, uh, and, and you can see that as the primary difference between the results here and the results from uh, from you know, your paper, Glenn. While there, uh, the you know the uh, the the false positive rate, and I'm going to use the real numbers and not the ones listed here for uh, the sample that was been both studies. And we'll talk about using inconclusive uh, as part of the calculation. Uh, but in your paper, it was 11 out of 113, or 8.9%. Uh, here, 17 out of 125, which is 13.6%. So, you know, another 50% higher, but not completely out of the realm of the possibility uh, of, uh, you know, differences between different groups of examiners. But it's the use of inconclusive for that sample, which in the U.S. Uh, examiners was over twice as, uh, as high. Yeah, and in a study like I conducted, inconclusive was an option, whereas proficiency tests, I, I, I think there is a subtle discouraging of using in, inconclusive, which and, – and keep in mind, right? I mean these both have focal points, so cores and deltas available. It all comes down to assessing the differences. You, you can't invoke your agency policy here for inconclusives because these are clear-cut with core. Both of them have cores and deltas. Oh, right, right, right. So not not using the inconclusive because it doesn't have a core or delta, but it doesn't preclude the use of inconclusive because sure. uh, there's a mix of similarities and differences. Yes, and, and I think that's the real point that you're making there, Eric, is that examiners may not know what to do with cases where there are lots of similarities but also some significant differences. I think examiners might really struggle with that kind of decision-making model still in the U.S., so, and I think that's that's I think the source of of uh, you know the possibility of an increased error rate here mm. is if you see similarities, well, you can't say exclusion. Well, your only other option now is ID. So, uh, the the in, dis, the discouragement of inconclusive you know has that direct cause for uh, for errors, which is why it's such an important uh, tool an error prevention tool which is why it should be included in the calculations 
uh, for for error rates, which we'll I'll save that again for a little bit later because that's going to be a whole topic by itself. Yeah, I mean, looking at the paper, what they reported for that one was fifteen point nine percent. So let's say sixteen, and what you basically calculate without the inconclusives is thirteen and a half. So we're off by a couple percentage points, but I'm going to argue that the authors of the paper. Even though they take that convention, and I know Jay Jay has been adamant about this for years. Inconclusive should be thrown out. You shouldn't get their benefit. And you know, he and I have, have respectfully disagreed on this issue. We both understand why. We both agree what should be reported are positive predictive values, negative predictive values, and discovery rates. We we agree that that separates that issue. But putting all that aside, so then why didn't he do it here? Well, because I, I think it was more – I think it was helpful for, for these purposes because you only had, like you said, um, two out of five you know, were – it wasn't a larger study. So these uh, positive predictive values and discovery rates do become more sensitive to your prior. Yes, it, it does. Your, your mixture of, of, um, of you know – Ground truth, uh, same source, different source samples. Yeah. But I don't think it would have changed things too differently, and I, I would like to have seen those data, but maybe he just wanted to keep a streamlined argument. Uh, point is, I'm going to argue something that I think they, they, they make a pretty good point of in the paper. It doesn't really matter if it's 13.5 or 16%. The point is it's 100 times higher than what's in black box study. And even in Miami-Dade, if you throw out the clerical errors, the point is you're 100 times more likely to be making false positive errors when you're encountering good close non-matches than your, if you will, average non-match that was used in those kinds of studies. And and on that, I completely agree. Okay. Uh, On the issue of... Close non matches are a important issue to research and an important issue for examiners to understand, for examiners to adjust their decision threshold when they're dealing with candidates from APHIS versus non APHIS uh, comparisons. All of these I completely agree with. And I mean, heck, the sample I, I was talking about from my training class again it's in training and you're just you're it's not ideal comparison circumstances but still that's even higher than this it's up to 20 uh 25 sometimes even 30 percent so I, i'm not disagreeing that the the possibility doesn't exist for a close non-match to produce this kind of error rate right but this is an important point to make and i want good research without without flaws on this issue and i i I just don't see that from this paper there's too many things to criticize that could then blunt the effect of uh this paper affecting how examiners operate and how accurate they can be i I think that that should be the goal that that this kind of research is striving for is improving examiner performance and not kind of fudging stuff to to make the point Mm. I mean, I, I get where you're you're coming from. That it it it's going to distract you from the real message. And the point is that obviously the error rate is much higher with close non matches, which we seem to both agree on. But by doing things like throwing out inconclusives, not mentioning that it was China, it starts to distract you a little bit from the the, the some of the key critical points. Right. So let's talk about accuracy here real quick. Sure. Any kind of any kind of percentage when you're measuring number of samples as a percentage of the whole you take the number of uh, times you saw event happen 
divided by the total opportunities for this event to happen. For the samples here, how many times did occurrences did uh, an agency, because it didn't really deal with examiners, but agencies. Which I thought was interesting. Uh, Let's come back to that in a minute. Go ahead. Sure. But how many opportunities did they have to make uh, an erroneous identification here? 125. Right. So 125. So then you look at for the first sample, how many errors actually occurred? That was uh, 18. So then the error rate would be the 18 samples where an error occurred divided by the 125 opportunities for an error to occur. And boom, there you go. There's your error rate. Taking out the inconclusive results is completely inappropriate uh, because each of them was an opportunity for an error to occur when it did not. Uh, it, it is indefensible for a, a researcher to not include those numbers. And I'm going to go even further than that for a, pub, uh, for a scientific publication to allow a paper to include those numbers. Oh, wow. Wow, that's... That's harsh. <laughs> I I don't have that viewpoint on it. I recognize it as a convention. I understand it's a convention. It's a they're following almost a PCAST convention. I I agree with you that I would have preferred them to have been in. I agree with you there. But wow, I, and I wouldn't go so far as to say the journal shouldn't allow it since it's a it's a, an allowable convention. I don't see it as as though. I mean, in especially in our in our field. Where inconclusive, you know, not only is a, uh, a technique, a, a strategy to avoid error, but in many comparisons is the appropriate answer. Well, I, I do hope Jay listens to, to this podcast and actually hears that because he needs to hear that side of it. Again, it's something that he and I have discussed for years, and I know he's heard it from me and others. Again, what I'm hearing from you is it's just distracting you from what I think is the real point is, all right, so what? It's a couple percentage points. It's still 100 times higher than than the other studies, which is really what I think they wanted to get across. And it would have probably been in their better interest to have kept the inconclusives in or at least gone with the discovery rate. But It's it's not going to work as a perfect analogy, but uh, you're, you're a fan of the Pittsburgh Steelers, right, Glenn? I am. How many Super Bowls have they won over the years? Uh, they have won six. Six Super Bowls. And how many Super Bowls did they play in but lose? Two. So... Uh, they've lost 25% of all Super Bowls. No, oh, that's ridiculous. <laughs> they, the Super Bowls they did not play in were, they could have won or lost that year. But when you're talking about how many, how many Super Bowls that they've won, it's six out of 58. It's not six out of eight. Uh, and again, the analogy starts to break down if you start thinking about it too much. So don't think about it too much. But, uh, <laughs> but. <laughs> Still, you have to look at the number of events divided by the number of opportunities for that event to occur. And if you start taking away the you know those opportunities for the event to occur when they actually were opportunities for that event to occur, th- then you're you're just wrong. I, I know you're trying to 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 couch this as a convention, but it's it's starting to fudge the numbers when you're not including every sample where this event could have occurred i I think the one the one thing i can i could say here where i i think that this scenario is more legitimate for the inconclusives i'm arguing against jay's point here 
is that this was a proficiency test. It's not like a study because their argument in the past or his argument in the past has been like if you're taking a study and there's no consequences, you could just answer them all inconclusive and just answer the easy ones. You don't really have that opportunity in the proficiency test. You really can't just say inconclusive to everything on a proficiency test. So I I would argue that this was a good opportunity to keep the inconclusives being that examiners thoughtfully included them or they might have even been a result of some kind of conflict resolution within the agency. Because one of the things I think we need to discuss here is that the numbers are based on 125 agencies, not the actual number of examiners participating. We don't know if the actual error rate was higher or lower, which I thought was an interesting part of the paper. Because as yeah. we know with CTS, and even Brendan Max talked about this in a previous episode when he was on talking about proficiency tests, is the idea that a proficiency test represents your agency's conclusion as opposed to a personal examiner's, which he has a problem with because it's you giving your proficiency test results in court to qualify you as a witness, whereas – if it was an agency proficiency test, the result of multiple examiners, he's sort of irritated. That's never brought forward. This I thought was a, a really interesting way to handle proficiency tests by saying we don't care how many examiners participated in it, but here's our conclusion for the agency. And it could have been you know, multiple within the agency. But here's again why I think inconclusives, to your point, might have been a little more important here is what if they were the result of – a conflict resolution. You had half your examiners at the agency saying an ID, half saying an exclusion. So to mitigate the risk, they've reported inconclusive on that trial. We we won't know that. I don't even know if that was a possibility. But in a U.S. agency, that is a possibility. Let's talk about the images. Um, the 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 sample. There are two samples, like I said before. First one was pulled from uh, Glenn, you know, your paper in the NIJ. It's listed as trial number twelve. And then the other one was pulled from an old JFI article from 02 by uh, Dusty Clark. The one that was pulled from 2002, that was the original image. And even in that article, they show the original image and a cropped version of it. And I remember when that article came out, even within our own agency, examiners were discussing it. And I heard the same thing I've always heard with close non-matches when they're reported as close non-matches is, oh, well, yeah, there's some similarities there, but I mean, I would never ID that. I mean, that's always the reaction. But the image that was used in the study was not that image, not either image in the paper. What was used in the study was a slightly different cropped version of that. And I and I know that because I've got a slightly different version, cropped version of it, and that image was an image that I use in my training. So they, in this paper, used one of my images. And I'd asked them as a professional courtesy if they would not publish the exact image that was used. Um, and, and this was personally selfish. Just because I'm using it in my trainings, I didn't want to right. have to go and search for another really good close non-match that I enjoy using. <laughs> um, so hard to find, right? Because <laughs> they are so hard to find when they're really good like that. So, And I was really pleased to see that they had honored that request, and I want to thank the authors publicly for, for doing that. They gave references. If you want to go and see some of the original source material, you can because they're out there, but they didn't publish the exact image used. Which leaves in some differences but has a high degree of similarity in a small area, and that's really the point. And that's why I use the image 
And I always tell students, look, I left the differences. You can actually crop out the differences and just have similarities. And I've known one instructor who did that and had a near 95% identification rate on that one after cutting out the, the, the clear differences. I leave them in because I enjoy the discussion, like you said. I enjoy that, that discussion with the students of what to do when you've got similarities and differences. And maybe you can attribute them to distortion, maybe not. Isn't this a good time to maybe use a softer, maybe an inconclusive or something else, especially in those approach one agencies that don't normally? It, it, it creates great training material in a course, in, in, a, in a classroom setting, but I could see how in this kind of environment, uh, wow, it could easily and did easily lead to a very high false positive error rate. All right. So I'll, I'll, let me say first, if you, if you want to kind of follow along, because uh, I want to talk about these images in a little more detail here. So if you want to follow along, I think Glenn's old paper, that NIJ publication, which I think is pretty relatively uh, um, findable. It is, uh, let's see, improving the understanding and reliability of the concept of sufficiency in friction ridge examination. Uh, Cedric Newman, Christoph Champeau, yourself uh, at all. Yeah, to be fair, that was Cedric that got an NIJ grant. That was that was 95% Cedric's and Christoph's work. All I have to do is come up with close non-match samples. <laughs> right, right. To be fair. Um, and, and, and you can ref- see that reflected in the article itself. It's very much <laughs> yes, it <laughs> from is. the statistician perspective. And then the other one, 2002 JFI uh, 52.4. And... Uh, so let, let's start with the, the your sample. It is a uh, small count right slant loop. Yeah, it's it's got some stuff. I mean, you know, a lot of the points are centered around the delta. Uh, the core is really close to the delta, so you know, around the core as well. Uh, you're obviously much more familiar with this one than mm-hmm. I am, just because you, you know, teaching it and, and writing about it. There are clear there are clear differences, but you could see how one might be tempted to explain it with distortion. In taking a quick look at it, uh, just in preparation for today, the the points that stood out to me the most were on the latent. There's a I don't know a bifurcation about two o'clock. Yep, that's the one. That's the one that everyone focuses on. Yes. And then uh, let me have a little bit more subtle in the known. There's a short ridge down yep. into the left or straight left from the delta. Yep, that's the other one. And that's the other one. Okay. Yep, those are the two. And they're in different areas. One's at like nine o'clock, and one's at two o'clock. Right. And um, but the, that one up at two o'clock just reminds me of other close on matches I've seen where people make mistakes. Is is trying to say you know distortion can kind of you know move things around, but not really understanding that distortion works like an accordion, moving ridges in and out, but not yep. along each other. Yep. Um, and and that being an important part of you know of that evaluation process that I I, I don't think is taught enough because uh, just because of how often I see people making that mistake. All right, so the the second sample here is from that uh, 2002 JFI article. From what you were saying, it sounds like the one that they used in this study was was not as because cr- it was more cropped than either of those. It's more cropped than either of these. Yes. Oh, okay. So there's there's you know there's there's one where it's basically the full latent except for maybe part of the tip, and then you know the relative area of the of the exemplar finger, uh, and then there's a version cropped way in on the core. 
for both the latent and the known. They show slightly different versions of it. So uh, sounds like what you're saying is they used a cropped version of this comparison in the study here. But the, the cropped version here in this paper, which I understand isn't quite the same cropped version, but still, I, I see seven points, eight if you include the core, like the stem-ish part mm-hmm. of the core. Yeah. Like how does that fit in with, I understand how that fits in with a 12-point standard. Yep. So, all right. So, the differences that you are recognizing, of course, because, and it, and it helps, you know, when someone says, hey, this is a close non-match. I have had as many as 14 found in similarity in that one uh, from students who have had that. I can see that for the full image, right, where there's... Well, even for the cropped one, and again, maybe the, the, the student version that they used is a little different, but there's, there's ones that I would argue, my own assessment would go, well, that's out of tolerance, but students find a way to find them in tolerance. And again, it, just like your previous one from the NIJ paper, you look at that and you go, well, that's clearly out of tolerance. Why would you say that? But that's where this misunderstanding of tolerance, it's so fluid. It, there aren't right. any really good rules for it. Only when you've had really good training do you go through these issues of when and when it is or isn't appropriate to adjust these tolerances. And I see it all the time in, in training courses, examiners having a really poor understanding of the application of tolerance, which now allows you to have 10 to 12 points in that Trial number two, Eric. I guess I'd have to see the the version that they actually compared with. Which is why I recommended to them as authors, don't include the images. It won't help your argument. Because as soon as you include the images, everyone looks at them and goes, I see five or six at best. Look at all these out of tolerance. No examiner would ever call these. And yet right. they're called all the time. And that's always my point is when you – when you have this priming that you know they're from different sources, the differences are so obvious. But if you don't have that priming, then your brain starts to make these little allowances. Could it be this? Could it be that? Well, if it's this – and I have watched hundreds of students, as you probably have too, come up with all the rope in the world to hang themselves with – and justify an identification when they're coming from different sources. And all you got to throw out is, could it be some twist? Could it be a scar? Could it be, oh, You throw out these little tiny things and they will generate their own rope to hang themselves with. I, I think the best example of that was uh, doing an open discussion of a similar sample where you know, one examiner who hadn't been revealed yet but actually got it wrong you know, went through, talked through her reasoning behind why she reached that conclusion and, and convinced someone that was on the other side of the mm-hmm. room to, to, to join her in the error so and it sounds so reasonable if i was a juror a lay person listening yeah. to that argument i go well that makes sense i mean she seems like she knows what she's talking about and that you have seen it over and over and over as i have this is that thing that needs to be talked about in the profession is that we we just don't know we see these we always see these differences that's why i'm arguing we always see them it's whether or not we rationalize them and attribute them to something else that then hangs us in the end. All right, so Glenn, I think you know we've got some differences of opinion on on the paper, obviously, uh, and but we've got some some common ground on the importance of this topic, uh, you know, as, as a whole, right? Yeah, that, yeah, agreed. We may be quibbling over 
some some percentage points again it, it is possible to have a sample you know with numbers in the range that they're talking about so I think bigger picture moving away from the the lines the items or the samples here in this paper what what can examiners do to improve on their performance when dealing with close on matches that is a fantastic question so and and one that I wish I had a better answer for because I, I we do find this in in class you know students especially when you reveal oh by the way they're from different sources and there's that moment of oh my god you're just saying that a bunch of us made a mistake on this one how do we recover from that so I do have this little therapy and, and I do have a few <laughs> things that I I recommend to examiners first of all is changing our culture towards towards error. I think that's that's huge. I, I think it's important to tell examiners, you got to take this job seriously. We want to try to reduce errors. Inconclusives are a viable option, so you don't have to pot commit to your conclusions. All that aside, recognize that from time to time, examiners could have a bad day. They could miss some differences, some subtle, some not so subtle, and in an APHIS environment, that risk is significantly higher. It would be like driving down the expressway on a really bad weather day, getting into an accident and going, you got into an accident, you're done. You're never driving for the rest of your life. That's it. It's over. And I think we have to have a little bit of, like in some of the insurance companies now, a little bit of you know, accident forgiveness here. That that even even an airplane pilot that crashes a plane can still fly again. Good point. If they live, if they, well, yes. <laughs> zombie pilots. Oh my god. <laughs> so I, I think we need to adjust our culture towards error and make it make it survivable uh, through an error and recognize and and find ways to make it positive in dealing with that. And and I and I think some of the work that will be coming out from Heidi Eldridge and Christoph Shampo's Close Non-Match Project, they have a grant, I think we talked about it before, they got a grant to pursue close non-matches, to build a database of them for training so we can basically begin to understand how close they can be and I think having accessible uh, samples to everybody will be really helpful and encouraging because I I would want as a trainee to have my trainees make multiple false positive errors during their training and then sort of learn how to manage these very serious errors but also learn how to work from it and improve. So changing our culture of errors, I think, a big one. I think I'll, I'll jump in with one and I think it's the – it kind of goes along with what you were saying of, of having those samples to to train with, and you know until there is that database accessible for you know, different agencies to pull from it and utilize, it's and it's also going to support that once it's it's a you know repository is created for that. But it's starting to look for and find you know samples of close non matches uh, in your own casework. Mm-hmm. You know as you're going through looking at AFIS candidates, go through every candidate. Don't just stop at the ID. Uh, if it, you know the number one candidate that's an ID, go through the whole list. Yep. If there's something that's a close time match, especially if you already have the, the ident, the actual matching source. Have we not talked about this before? I'm glad to see we're on the same page with this. I tell examiners all the time, don't stop at that first one. Go through the entire list, especially if you make the match at the first one. What a great exactly. opportunity to find these. I don't, I don't know if we've ever talked about this. 
I think before, because I, 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 I've, I've always been a huge advocate for doing this and, and, you know, critical of agencies that allow their examiners to stop. I mean, you know, there's also the opportunity to consolidate records if someone has, you know, two SID numbers in the database. Yeah. You know, uh, you still have the opportunity to, to correct that mistake, but which is another reason to go through the whole list, but to just to create these samples, right? You don't have to do a whole lot of work right up front. Just as you're going through, uh, hit the print screen button, stick it in a drawer somewhere, and then when you're ready to start uh, a training course with a with a new examiner, flip through them, find the ones that uh, now, years later, you've forgotten the specifics of this case. Just pull them up, look through, find the ones that are you know the most challenging for you. And and include those in the training material. I'm a hundred percent. And and I would also add to that when you go to court, if you've gone through the entire list, you get to say the following: I look at the top candidate and found correspondence, blah blah blah, sufficient for an identification. I continued yep. to look at the rest of the list, and nobody in that list had anything even close to these characteristics. To me, that goes a long way because if you see that the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth candidate all have the same characteristics you searched, <laughs> right? You get to Uh-oh. argue, well, maybe these aren't that specific to begin with. Maybe I really should be considering this decision because these characteristics in fact aren't that discriminating if my top six people all share this configuration of eight minutiae well and even worse if you have a defense attorney who knows what he's doing and as part of discovery gets that uh, information from the aphis system that may be recorded that you didn't even look at the other candidates you know that that's a that's a point that they might bring up on cross-examination you know, how do you know that not all, all the other ones didn't also match to this extent? You didn't even look at them. So along those lines, then another recommendation would be understanding that APHIS is a completely different environment. The yes. authors here, as well as myself in, in various research articles, and as well as other people, have all been able to demonstrate APHIS creates this environment where you find these. You would not get this kind of error rate if they weren't close non-matches. Finding close non-matches if you're not dealing with twins or APHIS are, are nearly impossible, and they really are. I think part of training is teaching examiners that APHIS invites its own set of different risk factors and that it's okay to have a different set of rules and a different risk assessment in an APHIS environment. Again, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring it back to a driving analogy. You know, It's a lot like driving and the rules need to change when the conditions are such that it's riskier for an accident. I live in a, in a snowy area and we don't drive <laughs> the same you know, when it is snowing, blizzarding, whiteout conditions and black ice as we do in the middle of summer. Uh, these are really different driving conditions. So you shouldn't behave exactly the same way. I don't understand why examiners in some agencies treat these as identical scenarios. An ID is an ID. No, the risk of error is, and as this article points out, magnitudes of order higher in an APHIS environment. It's okay to raise your threshold. It's okay to put more weight on differences. I would put more weight on differences in a Bayesian setting. This is effectively lowering your prior and and requiring a higher threshold of similarities, a higher threshold of uh, considering differences and recognizing the risk that's involved. And and I the paper 
I think missed that part of it, which I was a little surprised. I know Jay's a huge Bayesian fan, and I I, I was expecting a little more discussion on prior and risk in that. Uh, but I I think they end fine with the point of hey, you just need to consider these things, recognize that this is an issue that needs a lot further research. I'm going to argue that as a community, not only more research, but we really do need two very distinct sets of standards because the risks are inherently different. Exactly. I think that's a huge lesson to learn and in in training that needs to be taught, you know, more and more earlier and earlier in training. Exactly. Is that when you're when you're dealing with an APHIS candidate list, you need a couple extra points. Uh, it's hard to really quantify what that means because it's so variable on uh, the quality of all the features. Or maybe even a large surface area, right? I mean, exactly. not just a couple of points near the other cluster, but give a larger surface area, have a big gap in between where you've got more surface area for the unique impression to show its uniqueness. Exactly, which is why I was trying to say a couple extra points as a kind of a general term, but but it's really hard to kind of really have it be two. I mean, it can't just be two because, you know, it, like you're saying, it could be just a large open field. It could be you know, dealing with a larger surface area overall. Wouldn't you say, too, that in the close non-matches you've given or observed that when they're from different sources, you tend to have differences in multiple areas, whereas when they are from the same source and a distortion or a discrepancy that's being hidden as some kind of distortion tends to be kind of isolated. So allowing for larger impressions that have multiple areas of differences tend to be a really good clue of a close non-match, which is why searching small areas in an APHIS is so risky as opposed to searching larger areas that allow you to see those differences in multiple areas. Right, and it's, it's when you see the differences, you know, evaluating all the differences together, saying, okay, yeah, I've marked these out all as the same, but let me just take a closer look. Yeah, this one's a little bit off to the left. This one's a little bit off to the right. And on close on matches, it tends to be like that, where the differences are kind of back and forth. Um, while on a true same source with some sort of distortion, all the differences are kind of going the same way. Uh, they're because of a fault line, so they're all long here. Or if there's a twist, so everything kind of goes, you know, 30 degrees to the left it's you kind of you have to look at all right what differences are there even if they're minor what differences are there but evaluating them all together to see how it all fits together but uh, so another thing would be you know to kind of piggyback along with that of treating aphis differently than a non-aphis comparison is making sure the verifier knows that information as well Right, which I I think is left out of the discussion when it comes to blind verification because obviously in the blind, you don't tell them anything. And look, I'm I'm guilty of this. I mean students ask all the time in class, is this an APHIS search? And I go, I'll tell you later. (laughs) But I I totally agree. I think that this is one of those things that isn't talked about enough that I think if during a verification – blind verification – the examiner is requesting to know if it's from an APHIS search. I think that's a legitimate piece of information that should be given because it allows him or her to adjust their priors. And at this point, assign different weights, more weights, I would, to to differences. I, I think that's a really legitimate thing that's not talked about enough. I'm really glad you brought that up. 
Well, exactly. I mean, it comes down to what we just said of how you have to compare differently. Like, not like apples and oranges. I mean, it's still a comparison, but you have to have a different, a slightly different threshold for these APHIS comparisons. So then the verifier has to know to do that in this situation. Uh, you know, Glenn, you mentioned you know, not telling your uh, your students in your classes whether or not it comes from APHIS or not. I, I've taken a similar but little, little twist on that where I, I, I don't tell them. However, when someone figures out to ask, then I will tell them. Mm. Yep, <laughs> uh, but I, I won't tell them that they need to ask. Uh, and that's actually usually some classes they ask um, and then they kind of everyone kind of you know, catches on and starts asking for every comparison. Yeah. But usually it gets to a certain point and then I say, you know, all right, you guys all got this wrong. You know, what would have been helpful information to know is whether it was an APHIS search or not. And yes. I told you guys at the beginning, ask questions about these samples. I'll tell you what the <laughs> surface was. I'll tell you what the, you know, what the processing technique was. I'll tell you anything about the latent or the known that you want to know. Uh, clever. And then That's clever. Kind of let it be then a teaching moment later on in the class when no one figures out to ask me that. Because it, it's not something we're used to asking and we need to learn to ask it. No, that's a, uh, you make a really good point. When the few students that do ask, I usually go, that is a fantastic question. I'm glad you're thinking that way. <laughs> and then I don't answer them. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's another way to take it. <laughs> I, I think, you know, we, we kind of outlined some. Some important steps of, you know, but it's mainly being aware of how APHIS hugely increases the risk for close nine matches uh, and then ensuring that you get training on on actually comparing close nine matches. Uh, I think everything kind of, you know, filled into those you know, two over uh, overarching bins. I think I'm mixing my metaphors there. Hmm. But uh, I, I've got some criticisms of the paper in general, but I... I it's because I, I I view this research as so critical and yeah. and uh, and I'm just holding it to a, a really high standard. Well, I and I hope if the the authors hear that they'll recognize where that that criticism is coming from. The other thing I'll add to this that I expressed to the authors personally is that. I expect that this paper is going to be cited a lot. Like we're going to see this paper in the courtroom. I would hope examiners read this. I would make this required reading. And I, I think it's really important to recognize that we can have different error rates. I mean we've been saying this for years, but it, there is no such thing as a single error rate. This paper clearly shows, as, as did previous papers – that when you're dealing with close non-matches, you've got one set of errors. The FBI, remember, the FBI, when they did the black box study, they actually did search non-matches, the non-mates, in IAFIS, and they did use the top candidate in most of the trials. So that's, that is a standard sort of AFIS. So I, that's something that was missed in this paper, which maybe the authors didn't realize, is that black box did have APHIS searches, they may not have been these good hand-picked close non-matches, which makes things a little different. So so the FBI using these top candidates would have had some degree of similarity, but they also likely would have had lots of clear and obvious differences because they didn't go through this hand-picked kind of uh, process to ensure that they were the best of the best close non-matches. So we can't necessarily dismiss those errors. And I think there's a really important point in this paper is 
that the paper basically says when talking about error rates, you need – first of all, as a witness on the stand, you have to bring – you need to talk about error rates. You can't be dismissive of these. There are all these papers. You, yeah. need, you need to bring up error rates. So that's point one. And then to make comments about how this case matches or is similar to the research available. Is this a circumstance where it's like the FBI black box where it's one search against APHIS but not necessarily the best close non-match but could be the top-ranking candidate? Or is this a possibility that it could be in fact a really good close non-match which in casework you'd never really know but you have to recognize the potential for all these different circumstances and be able to address these different error rates. And I, I think they make some good points that as the witness – you need to not just cite the lowest error rate studies but explain why that error rate study is a better estimator of the circumstances in this present case. Uh, a good example would be I got five IDs to the defendant saying that you know each one of these has a 20% error rate because of a close non-match study. That's kind of a silly argument. It's a completely different environment when you've made five IDs to the same individual, whereas a single latent print, the only thing in the case, very marginal latent print, small area searched in NGI, well, you might be looking at a circumstance like this close non-match paper or maybe black box. Wait, wait, uh, five latents each with a 20% risk of error? That, that sounds like a 100% risk of error to me. <laughs> That's some good math there, my friend. Uh, so no, you must I, have I gone to an Arizona public school. <laughs> yeah, 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 but I went to the good one. So okay. Uh, <laughs> I, I think you bring up a great point, though. Is is in the likelihood that this gets brought up in court for you know, one of our listeners is pretty high, and, and then preparing for what to say about it is important. And uh, kind of following along with what you said there, if this is a situation that doesn't fit the circumstances of this study. For example, you got five IDs to the guy, or maybe you only have one ID, but there's 30 points that match up. Being able to discuss how this particular case is different than research on close non-matches and doesn't really line up and, and uh, yeah. isn't the most pertinent study to talk about error rate in this situation. If your latent or your case is a single ID of nine points from an ngi search well there's there's that but you know that that could happen you know talk about it talk about the quality assurance uh, processes that you guys have in place that uh you know error is you know increased on on this sample acknowledge that it is because it is i mean i mean honestly think about it you know don't don't shy away from it don't diminish it in fact you'll have right. more credibility in the eyes of the juror if you go no this is exactly the kind of case where errors can ha can happen and have happened in various sorts of research uh, there i don't think there's any way to come out of that basically saying and there's no chance i made that error in this case i think that's arrogant and will put you in a bad light with jurors because remember fingerprint shouldn't be the only evidence in the case right and if it is the only evidence and it's an eight-point NGI search and the guy's in Florida and he's 80 years old and this was a burglar in rural <laughs> Minnesota, I would want to question that decision as well. Right, right. But, but I mean, let's just recognize, you know, the, 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 the suspect generated by the detective that you identify only once, but you identify with 30 points, 
It's a very different situation than the uh, the defendant that's identified from an NGI search with over a billion fingerprints in in that system. Right. Uh, when there's only, when you only got eight, like, that's just a hugely different scenario, and and it, it's fair to talk about how they're different. Yeah, and I think a witness puts them in the, themselves in a really difficult situation, trying to pass that off as. However, I know in this case I got it right. There's no way I can be wrong because to me that really is like the guy driving down the highway in the middle of a blizzard at 70 going, I got this. I've driven this road a (laughs) hundred times before. I've never crashed. I got it. I know what I'm doing. I I think that's ridiculous. And and when that truck driver passes me going 70 miles an hour and I see him in the ditch, I have a little bit of schadenfreude. Good German word. Good German word. Uh, Absolutely. All right, Glenn. Uh, good discussion uh, this week. Yeah, it's a great it's a great paper, and I hope everybody will read it and recognize. Well, this is it. This is the moment that I think things will start to 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 focus a little bit because I, I think the secret's out there. Uh, I I I know we we quibbled on a few little points, but I think we both agree it's an important paper that will make people sort of stand up and really have to look at this in more seriousness. You know what? I want to add one more thing in here because I, I think there's another point of for what examiners can do to avoid uh, or reduce the risk of error in close non-matches. Oh, please uh, that, do. That's important. And I, and I, I just realized that we, we kind of uh, uh, over um, we kind of missed it. And that is say inconclusive when you're inconclusive. No, oh, great point. That's that is uh, it is a hugely important part of avoiding errors, especially for close non matches, and really then emphasizes why that data should be included in the calculation because that's what we're training examiners to do when they come up against this situation. And I know we're both proponents of it. Do you think that the OSAC conclusion scale will allow more examiners to, in these circumstances, say support for same source? When in fact, in the past, it would have been just an inconclusive, not necessarily indicating or signaling either direction. You think there will be more of a temptation for misleading evidence at this point? No, no, I do. I think there's a trade-off there in providing more information, but uh, with an increased risk of of more misleading information. However, I think it would it also serves to just decrease that misleading information overall in taking away some of the close calls on close on matches that people make as an ID and, and now reporting them as a, um, a support for same source instead. My sense is that there will be more of that misleading evidence, but then it'll be really critical like the Busey studies to say, well, look, yes, when we give these sort of support for same source decisions, we're wrong one in six times or one in eight times, which is going to be a really high error rate and I think uncomfortable for examiners to <laughs> yeah. discuss. But once they start to get used to it, it won't feel it won't feel that bad and because it'll be the truth. And again, it's it's important information for triers of fact to consider that. When we give these sorts of decisions, we do tend to be wrong more than when we make these source identifications. Uh, it, 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 it makes it uh, it makes it more difficult, but I think it brings it in line with what I would say is good science. Yeah, I, I think though it will also serve to kind of like I said, uh, decrease the error rate on the on the bad IDs. Yeah, which which 
you know, looking at just as a loan saying, oh, no, we're going to have these you know, more misleading evidence in this category. Yeah, but, you know, that's that's a that's a cost, but there are other benefits to it. All right, so uh, let's close this out before we get into the emails and, and uh, uh, internet contacts. Uh, Glenn, what, what, um, what kind of stuff do you have coming up? Yeah, I just want to alert listeners that uh, there are uh, webinars available that I've been teaching through Evolve Forensics, www.evolveforensics.com. Uh, that's Alice White's company. And I've been doing that all through the pandemic, and they've been going great. And you'll find uh, webinars basically every month or so. There's a few I teach. And if you're interested in learning about bloody impressions, you're interested in preparing for a Daubert hearing, learning about error rates and and OSAC conclusion scale, bias, and so on, check out those webinars. I'm going to continue teaching them. Well, I don't know how long this damn pandemic is going to be going on, Eric, but it seems seems in perpetuity at the moment. Uh, So I'm at least teaching them out through spring next year. Before I forget, we need to do the anagram. So con man clothes. Uh, Glenn, you said you got it way back at the beginning, but uh, unscramble con man clothes for us. Well, I mean, it was a big theme of today's topic, close non-match. There you go. Yeah, I was just testing out a few different ideas, uh, stuck that into the old descrambler online and was like, oh, con man clothes, I think. <laughs> oh, it's perfect. It yeah. really is. It's, um, yeah, it, I, I loved it. It was a great synergy with today's topic as well. Exactly. So if you have any questions for us, you know, your opinions on this uh, this paper, uh, Glenn at EliteForensicServices.com or Eric at RayForensics.com. DoubleLoopPodcast.com is our website. You can get links from there to all the socials uh, and also see the um, our merch uh, page, which I got to get. I gotta get on it and get. We had some new ideas for new T-shirt designs and new stuff. So now is the time of the year where <laughs> everyone's gonna be ordering online anyway. So might as well get some more uh, designs up there for the next round of of uh, the holidays. Let's see. The opinions expressed on the show are those of the speaker, not necessarily any one that they work for. And with that, I think that's everything. So thank you guys for listening, and talk to you guys next time. Bye, everybody. Have a great week. Stay safe. Stay sane. Stay healthy.